Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, the legal profession has its share of outstanding women, many of whom are Black African Americans. But like most professions, they've had to battle discrimination on two fronts, sexism and systemic racism. Yes, that is a field where women have excelled, but getting ahead in a male-dominated profession like the law has been hard for women, especially in the early 20th century, and predictably Black African-American female lawyers have had it tougher. Yeah, yeah, and statistics bear it out. According to a book written in 1998 entitled Rebels in Law, in 1950, only 83 Black women were lawyers in this country, compared to nearly 7,000 white women and 174,000 men. Also, until the mid-1930s, the main source of legal education for Black African Americans was Howard University, because many other law schools, especially in the South, prohibited admission of Black students. So having only one law school severely limited the number of Black African American lawyers. And Carol, I understand that even when women achieved law degrees in the early part of the 20th century, their activities were limited to writing briefs and acting as children's guardians and serving as assistants on cases. That's true. That is very true. These um, were the legal jobs considered women's work, while the more serious legal work was reserved for men. For example, judges inevitably passed over women jurists when appointing commissioners, masters, and receivers. Now, there have, however, been women who exceeded expectations in the area of law, such as Charlotte E. Ray, who was born in 1850. She was, get this, the first African-American female lawyer in the United States. She was the first female admitted to the District of Columbia Bar, and she was the first female admitted to practice before the Supreme Court of the District of Columbia. Now, unfortunately, Ray eventually stopped practicing law because she wasn't able to maintain a steady client flow because of racism and sexism. And so later she moved back to New York and became a teacher in Brooklyn. There's Definitely nothing wrong with being a teacher on Carol, but it's a shame that Charlotte Ray wasn't able to work in the field she loved the most. I agree, Courtney. I've always been able to work in the field that I love the most, being a teacher myself for many years and a school administrator. And so I highly respect those positions in education, but women shouldn't be limited to roles that are considered appropriate as, quote, women's work. And that's what teaching has long been considered. Now, another early exceptional legal mind was Jane Boland. She was born in Poughkeepsie, New York in 1908. Now, although she was strongly discouraged from applying to Yale Law School due to her race, she was admitted and she graduated in 1931. 
she has a long list of firsts. Listen to this. She was the first Black African-American woman to graduate from Yale, uh, from Yale Law School. She was the first Black African-American woman to join the New York Bar Association. She was the first Black African-American woman to join the New York City Law Department. And she was the first Black African-American woman to serve as a judge in the United States. Both of these women were amazing. I wonder if they were, if they were living today, what remarkable achievements they would have made. Well, in addition to the ones they made in the past, I could imagine they'd be on the forefront for change, probably leading some of the political justice work that's going on now, or even being in politics, leading as uh, legislators as well. Now, as amazing as these two women were and are, I believe you have a story about a female lawyer from the early 20th century who, like Charlotte Ray and Jane Bolin, defied the odds to excel in the legal profession. And she also has ties to a famous mobster. Oh, yes, Aunt Carol, I do. Eunice Hutton Carter indeed is tied to the mob, but in a good way. Carter made a habit of being a first throughout her life, and that was no different in her work with special prosecutor Thomas Dewey. She was the first to provide the crucial evidence that would result in one of the greatest prosecutions against organized crime in American history. Eunice was born in 1899 in Atlanta to William and Addie Hutton, who were accomplished social activists. Her parents instilled in her a sense of duty to serve. And after the 1906 Atlanta massacre in which Black African-Americans were brutally attacked by armed mobs of whites, William moved his family north to Harlem, New York. Brilliant and well-respected, the Carters traveled widely as key figures in the racially segregated YMCA. After her father's death, Eunice's mother repeatedly and fearlessly traveled through the Deep South into Klan territory, speaking on behalf of the NAACP. Hmm. Now, Eunice and her younger brother grew up in large part away from each other and from their parents. They did spend a formative year and a half together in Germany with Addie. Now, often, Addie, often while Addie traveled, Eunice and her brother were left with guardians. Now, Eunice graduated from the prestigious New York High School and with the help of one of her mother's friends, attended Smith College. Now, upon graduation, she tried her hand at writing and was somewhat successful. Now, it was during the time of the Harlem Renaissance, so she found herself among the literati or the, the it people of the day, such as Langston Hughes, uh, County Cullen, and Zora Neale Hurston. Now, though creatively satisfying, writing did not pay the bills, so she used her degree in social work to make a living in New York and New Jersey in the 1920s. Now, during that time, she took classes at Fordham Law School and became the first African-American woman to receive a law degree there. Oh, so she's starting out with one of her many firsts. 
Exactly. Now, because her family was a part of Harlem's high society of notable African-Americans, Eunice easily could have spent her life raising a family and being the wife of a successful, respectful dentist or respectable dentist. She had the respectable dentist she had married, Liesl Carter Jr., in a small but sophisticated wedding that had made the society pages of the Black press around the country. Now, just a year earlier, she had been a bridesmaid in one of the most important social events in Harlem, and that was the wedding of Madam C.J. Walker's granddaughter. Because of society connections through her parents, she was friends with notables such as Mary McLeod Bethune, Walter White, W.E.B. Du Bois, and many others. But Eunice wasn't satisfied to socialize among these people and hold cocktail parties or frequent the theater and appear in the society page columns. She had bigger dreams in mind. Now, at one point, she ran a spirited campaign for office on the Republican ticket in a tightly contested race, but lost to a well-backed Democratic candidate. By the 1930s, Black African-Americans had become disenchanted with the Republican Party and were turning more to progressive Democrats. Even though she lost her only race for office, she had made a good showing. Also, she helped get the new... York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia elected because of her Harlem connections. So Eunice stayed on LaGuardia's radar screen. Even when the newly appointed state special prosecutor Thomas Dewey began his search for attorneys, LaGuardia submitted her name for consideration. Wow. So she was right up there um, and considered very important at that time. Very important. Now, in 1935, Dewey began the rigorous process of hiring 20 attorneys to work on his anti-mob team. 3,000 lawyers were interviewed for slots and all went through rigorous background checks to make sure they were squeaky clean and had no mob connections. Now, Dewey hired a big staff to fight organized crime, and each of the 20 lawyers he chose were assigned a different area of organized crime to investigate. Now, these rackets included labor unions, gambling, and even scams in the baking industry. You heard right, ladies and gentlemen, cakes and corruption. (laughs) What a connection. Anyway. Now, according to Dewey, Eunice Carter impressed him immediately, so he chose her to work on looking at racketeering in Harlem. Carter thus became the first female African-American assistant district attorney in the state of New York. She was she was the only woman and the only black African-American on Dewey's team. Another group of firsts. Sexism, though, prevailed. And as with most female attorneys at the time, Eunice was relegated to women's work when she was assigned to investigate prostitution, considered a woman's crime, rather than the flashy crimes like gambling and even murder for hire. But Eunice decided to make the best of it, and she charged into her duties full steam. Now, at first, Dewey had his sights set on taking down the gangster known as Dutch Schultz. But when Schultz was murdered in a gangland slang, he turned his attention to Lucky Luciano. 
Now, Dewey made a plea to New Yorkers to come forward anonymously and tell what they knew about racketeering in the city. Witnesses were encouraged to come to the heavily guarded Woolworth building where Dewey's crack team of attorneys were housed to give information. Now, as the story goes, an overwhelming number of witnesses started flooding the offices to tell about prostitution and brothels that were running rampant in their neighborhoods. But Dewey considered prostitution a vice offense and not the big time crime he was after. So he relegated these witnesses to Eunice Carter to hear their concerns and for the most part, usher them out the door. Witnesses told Eunice how they had complained to the police about the brothels that were just temporarily shut down only to be open days later. They told of the police they believed to be on the take and judges dismissing cases against known prostitutes. It seemed to them that there was something working in the background, allowing prostitution rings to continue unchecked. Now, Carter agreed, so she kept digging into the evidence, and she noticed something very intriguing about these prostitutes in their cases. Most of the defendants were using the same bondsman, a man named Carp, and the same lawyers, as well as similar stories to get them to beat their raps and get them back out on the street. Now, a big breakthrough came when she was given a treasure trove of records stored at the New York Public Library. It was a huge collection of file cards that had been collected by a group called the Committee of 14. These cards contained locations and addresses of houses of prostitution all across New York. Now, after digging into the connections of the lawyers and the bondsmen and reviewing this avalanche of cards, Eunice started piecing the puzzle together. Soon, she concluded that the mob controlled New York's prostitution as an elaborate racket with brothels around the city. Now, with her newfound evidence, she began sending numerous mem memos to Dewey about the connections and her concern that the prostitution rings had to be a bigger part of the picture. It was a mob racket, plain and simple, and the mob was keeping it running through bribery, intimidation, and force. Now, try as she might, though, Eunice's warnings and information went unheeded, and her memos were ignored. Eventually, she became discouraged that her keen detective work would go unnoticed. Nobody's paying attention to her evidence. So let's take a break and we'll come back and hear where this real life drama leads. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? See you there. Okay, Courtney, we're back. It looks like Eunice Carter did a lot of legwork on that prostitution angle, what did she do next? Well, 
And Carol, like we said before the break, Eunice had been recruited to join Thomas Dewey's crack team of lawyers assigned to New York's notorious crime syndicate. Now, just a little backstory. During the 30s, crime was rampant in New York City, ranging from rackets involving drugs, illegal liquor, loan sharking, the numbers, and prostitution. And the most notorious gangster had his hands in all of them a man by the name of lucky luciano now luciano had rose to prominence as a bootlegger for the sicilian mafia during prohibition in 1931 now after murdering or frightening away any rival bosses he created america's first national organized crime syndicate the commission run by New York's five Italian families and some top-ranking Jewish mobsters such as Dutch Schultz and Luciano's longtime friend, Meyer Lansky. The stuff of gangster movies. The stuff of gangster legend. Now, bringing down Luciano became the number one job of Dewey's team. Eunice was driven to help the team achieve this goal, so she had gone to work using her legal skills to that end. Now, at first, Eunice's theory that the prostitution was an organized racket was not believed or even taken seriously, but she pressed her case. She eventually confided in one of Dewey's top assistants, Murray Gerfin, and what and what she had found out. Now, at first, he was skeptical, too, but after looking at her overwhelming evidence, he agreed to go to Dewey and lay out her information. So the two of them were going to go and talk to Dewey. Well, of course, it looks like the woman has to go with a man, but it, anyway. Sadly, she needs the help of a man. Somehow mm-hmm. she's done all this legwork, but the light bulb, you know, she'll only believe, be believed if a white gentleman leads her by the hand. Mm-hmm. Now, Thomas Dewey was still not buying the theory, though. He refused to believe that prostitution could be a part of some type of central control. Also, he didn't want to end up prosecuting small-time criminals like madams and prostitutes, since he was after the big names and the heads of criminal operations. Now, eventually, though, he did see the light a little bit and agreed to a daring plan that Eunice had devised to flush out the mob higher-ups. Her plan was to have all the bail bondsmen and men who booked the prostitutes jailed. Afterwards, the police would simultaneously raid hundreds of brothels across the city. Wow, that's pretty clever. Very clever. Now, the idea was that once the prostitutes and madams were arrested and realized they had to sit in jail a long time since the bail bondsmen who usually bailed them out were in jail themselves, somebody would eventually talk and lead them to the boss of the crime syndicate. Okay, that kind of makes sense if they're brave enough to talk. Now, Dewey ordered the raid of scores of brothels and arrested 100 sex workers. After sitting in jail without bail, several of them eventually agreed to testify about the mob ties to their business. This break confirmed Eunice Carter's theory. Racketeers were indeed deeply entrenched in illegal prostitution, collecting 50% of the prostitute's money. Hmm. So she's being vindicated. Yes, and eventually the trail led to Luciano, who was charged with pandering on a large scale. Now, of course, he denied any involvement in prostitution. His defense was that he was not directly linked to any of the brothels and he was being railroaded by the prosecution. 
But in a dramatic cross-examination of Luciano, Dewey asked how the rich mobster could afford such an extravagant lifestyle on the $22,500 he reported on his tax returns. Of course, Luciano had no explanation, and the sensational trial ended in a guilty verdict. Lucky was sentenced to 30 to 40 years in prison, and he was later paroled in 1946 and deported to Italy. Now, with Luciano's conviction based on Carter's discovery was considered the most successful court action against organized U.S. crime in history and put a dent in Luciano's syndicate's illicit activity and political corruption. Well, Courtney, that's quite a bit to take in and to know that a Black African-American lawyer provided the fodder to bring down that guy. Um, So... That being the case, did Eunice Carter receive the fame and notoriety many of her white male counterparts who worked on this case actually achieved? Well, yes and no. Even though Eunice had pieced together the prostitution puzzle and she understood the operation in minute detail, when it came time to decide who would try the case, Thomas Dewey chose a man to take charge of preparing the madams and prostitutes for testimony. And even though four lawyers were chosen chosen to assist that attorney, Eunice was still not one of them. Even though she had... The, she knew the picture. She understood how this all came together. Hmm. It was her plan, her work, her investigation, but she still did not get to prep her witnesses. Now, in the legal world, the, the job of preparing witnesses is a juicy role. And in spite the fact that Eunice Carter had originated the prostitution theory and even won over some of the women to get their trust to tell their stories, she was only allowed to prepare minor witnesses. So nobody major in the case. Hmm. There were some accolades for Eunice after the trial. During the post-trial press conference, Eunice was one of a handful of assistant attorneys Thomas Dewey acknowledged and thanked publicly. And the mainstream white press sang her praises. Liberty Magazine, the most widely read magazine at the time, published a fictionalized version of the trial that featured Eunice in some parts. She also appeared in various newspaper articles and Life Magazine. Now, among Black African, the Black African American press and community, Carter was held as a heroine too. Harlem society swirled around her and she was invited to all the best parties and the events of the Glitterati set. But it was the recognition and rewards and professional growth within the legal profession that escaped Eunice. She never received the level of reward the white male lawyers on the case had won. For example, Carter was promoted to deputy assistant district attorney for New York, and she headed one of the department's largest legal division with a big staff reporting to her. However, her salary was less than her male counterpart. Also, she was never appointed to a seat as a judge, and she was overlooked for several plum positions and appointments that lawyers with her credentials and accomplishments would have gotten. All in all, though, she remained a well-respected lawyer and during her lifetime considered one of the most influential Black African-American women nationally within the Republican Party. She eventually went to work as a private attorney and advised the United Nations on women's rights issues. 
and she worked for the council of the National Council of Negro Women and served as a national board member for the YMCA. Now, Eunice Carter died in 1970, bringing her illustrious career to an end. Well, you know, Courtney, it's interesting. I was in high school in 1970 and never, ever learned about someone named Eunice Hunton Carter. And I wish I had, because what a story it is. It's also indicative of the way that Black African-American lawyers sometimes, and women especially, don't achieve the long-term hero worship that they deserve for their accomplishments. I agree, Ann Carol. So let's talk about today. Are there female, uh, particularly Black African-American female attorneys, making any better progress towards equality and representation in the legal profession? Well, as you said earlier, yes and no. Uh, a recent report from the National Association for Law Placement and a survey of diversity at 232 law firms really found um, some, a little bit depressing news. Women of color and Black women specifically continue to be significantly underrepresented because they make up just 8.57% and 1.73% of all attorneys, respectively. And law firms are overwhelmingly white and male despite efforts to recruit people of color from prestigious academic institutions. Well, clearly there are fewer Black African-Americans and women in the legal profession. But Ann Carol, does that old adage uh, prove true that they have to work twice as hard as their white counterparts do? Absolutely, my dear niece. Not only do they have to work harder and longer, but there is pressure to be flawless because the stereotypical assumption of incompetence leaves little to no room for error. The research of numerous scholars reveals that women and people of color tend to be significantly penalized for marginal errors as compared to white men. And Rosette and Livingston did a study that found Black African-American women leaders in particular were punished more harshly than their white counterparts for making a mistake. Sounds like the legal profession needs to do some work to root out systemic racism. Yes, you've got that right. They've got a lot of work to do. And these studies could help the legal profession answer the questions why Black partners at law firms are so rare and what needs to change. They need to examine and address why attrition rates among women and people of color remain high and why their advancement rates are so low as well as they need to take a look about, uh, about why Black African-American female associates, even though they're hired in greater numbers than Black male associated associates, they're promoted to partner far, far less often. So the work that needs to be done involves investing in structural changes, such as making partners in law firms accountable for ensuring that Black African-American women receive the essential training and opportunities to help them remain and grow in the field. Thankfully, we have two recent role models that show how powerful Black African-American women have excelled within the legal profession when given the chance. Loretta Lynch earned a Bachelor of Arts in English and American Literature from Harvard College and a JD from Harvard Law School in 1984. In 2014, President Barack Obama named Lynch U.S. Attorney General after Eric Holder, making her the first African-American woman and second African-American after Holder to hold this office. 
And of course, more than eight decades after Eunice Carter's blockbuster contribution to bringing down the mob, another woman attorney is making history, Vice President Kamala Harris. Vice President Harris became the first person of color elected as the district attorney of San Francisco. She was the first African-American and the first South Asian-American to hold the office of attorney general in California. And she is the first woman, first African-American, and first South Asian-American vice president of the United States. Harris often says, my mother had a saying, Kamala, you may be the first to do many things, but make sure you're not the last. And if you'd like to hear our episodes from the first to the last or find us on social media, please make sure you visit us at our website, www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry that brings today's episode to a close we hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question why are they so angry as always we hope you learn something so you can see it say it and confront it